Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy back again with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups with my sidekick and super producer, Alex. I'm here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Barely. You don't sound very committed to being here. Sorry, I was looking at something else and then you, uh, you, you cued me before I was quite prepared for you. Anyway, yeah, glad to be here. Thanks. Oh, good, good. Well, um, you know, we, we often report on crimes close and far, near and far here and um i think not always in florida sometimes but not always in florida sometimes they're at your house that was only one crime and i got a ticket for it and that's just why why do you we just i'm gonna bonk you there's another one there's another one there are no more crimes i saw it going on it is not a crime yeah because because you have a business um putting together bikes no Yes, (laughs) Yes, no. <laughs> you're and you're lying to me right now. Yeah, you do. Because what do you do? You get on, and somehow you have this super secret way to get the same frames. And this is bicycles, high end bicycles. And you are you able to find the molds that big producers use and bring the bikes over that way, or how do you? Oh my God, you're going to broadcast all my secrets. Okay, so you yes, I do business. have. I wouldn't call it a business. It's more like a hobby. It's something I do just for fun when I have the bandwidth to do it because I enjoy doing it and I can make some decent money doing it. So it's sourcing bicycles for people and putting them together in kind of a custom manner or building bicycle wheels and that sort of thing. Um, And one of my tricks with this, because I've done a good bit of work overseas with a lot of the manufacturers. So something that a lot of people don't know in the bicycle world is that 98% of all bicycle parts are produced in uh, in Asian countries. So China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, some in Vietnam. And anyway, uh, that's just where they come from. And they make great quality stuff over there. And they, you know, they make some really cheap stuff too, because we ask them to, but you know, they also make stealth fighters and satellites. And yeah, I mean, these guys can manufacture with the best of them. So uh, one of the things, one of my tricks is to pull in from some of the manufacturers I know over there that produce frames for a lot of the big companies. Now to produce a carbon fiber frame on a bicycle, you have to have a big mold either cut out of a, you know, two big sheets of steel that are about two Mm -hmm. inches thick um, or out of aluminum, but usually it's steel. And, uh, and they use those, they basically cut the mold into those big plates of steel that are the size of your dinner table and weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And they fill them with carbon fiber and that's how they, you know, they make the bicycle. Well, the specs for that and the sizes and dimensions and geometry is all that is is meticulously planned out by whomever is ordering it. Uh, and what they'll typically do is they'll uh, they'll you know they'll do a run for whoever the manufacturer is, or I should say the purchaser. Uh, so let's say it's you know Schwinn for example. Right. It's not Schwinn, but uh, they they might order ten thousand of a certain carbon fiber frame. So those get produced. What the company will do, the manufacturing company, is they'll look at what the, the flaw rate's going to be, and they try and compensate for that by producing extras. Overruns, so, yeah. Exactly. So if they get a run or they get an order for 10,000 frames, they may make 10,200, 10,300, knowing that maybe 100, 200 are going to have flaws in them. 
the ones that are flawed may be perfectly fine, but they've got an aberration in the paint or something along that line. Uh, and so those, they end up selling off separately. So it may very well be a $2,000 frame, just a bicycle frame. No parts, uh, no wheels. Yeah, no parts, no nothing. It's just, you know, that, a very high-end frame. Uh, but it, since it was blemished, it couldn't go under the name of the of the company that originally ordered it. They end up selling these. I don't want to say it's gray market because it's not, but you can buy them online uh, in any number of places. Alibaba. Yeah, that's that's a great one. Uh, <laughs> the the trick is knowing who you're dealing with and what to look for and what not to. And uh, you can get burned doing this, so I don't recommend it for everybody. Uh, but if you know what to look for, you can actually find these name brand parts that were produced for the name brand, but didn't ultimately didn't go to them without the name and you end up getting them for just a rock bottom price. And so for me, this is just, it's kind of fun to, uh, you know, I can buy a frame or two or put them together and then I sell it off to somebody. And it is basically, you know, this high end Schwinn frame, which Schwinn and high end don't go together by any stretch anymore. They used to, but they don't now. Um, Nonetheless. So we'll just use the, the name Schwinn. So I can, you know, produce basically a high-end Schwinn frame and put everything together uh, with the parts and give that out to somebody and it'll ride just like the bike that they would buy in the store, but it cost a fraction of the price. But then the other day, you bumped up on the line, didn't you? You bumped up on the line when you put the sticker on I it. was just trying to cover <laughs> myself because everybody kept asking me, wow, what kind of bike is that? And I'm like, Schwinn. It's a Schwinn. <laughs> <laughs> <It's not. laughs> so I put some stickers of the manufacturer on the frame, which makes me a poser. I know this. No, it makes I'm you a, a terrible, counterfeiter terrible is what it makes you. Well, only if I'm selling it with those stickers. If I'm just riding it around in my driveway, really just let's let's make the point that I'm riding circles around you in my driveway the way that I always ride around you. <laughs> circles and circles around Tracy. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I put stickers for that manufacturer on my um, non-manufacturer frame, which actually they correspond to who it was made for, but it is not, I did not purchase it from them. So in that regard, I'm a big faker. The big counterfeiter, big right? old counterfeiter. We're busting all kinds of crimes at your house. <laughs> but um, so so you know, uh, you know who we're talking to today on the podcast. Who are we talking to? Is this uh, is this the one with a uh, uh, the one who does the impressions, right? Oh yeah, Jason Hewlett, friend of mine, <laughs> friend of mine. And then this guy, I'm telling you, he is amazing on stage, and he does all kind of impressions. And he he performed in Vegas for a long time. Like he does Elton John and Ricky Martin and Michael Jackson and all sorts of things. And he, uh, well, he'll, he'll tell us like, he, like he, he always tells people, he's like, yeah, I, I walked away from a big Vegas contract cause they wanted to make my, uh, make my show not really family friend friendly. And he's a big, he's a big family friendly, uh, proponent guy. Mm. And then, uh, something else happened after that, where, um, he ended up losing a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, this was where he got swindled, right? He got swindled. Yeah. What happened? Well, He'll tell us what happened, but uh, he, uh, someone who said that they were going to help him, uh, didn't. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, hundred hmm. grand, boom, done. Well, and I understand that was for producing a show of some sort or another, and we can get into that later. But you know what I would have done is I just would have taken the show and put in some sticker, put some stickers on it, and sold it for a hundred thousand. Well, I know that's what you should do. Yeah, because yeah. I am a big cheater. just a big fraud all right so in your crime report today are you ready for florida florida 
Florida girl. What Florida girl? Yeah, it's two Florida girls. In fact, <gasps> what? Okay, it's what, a seventeen-year-old Florida girl and her mama. What? They were arrested for allegedly hacking into people's online accounts at her high school and submitting two hundred and fifty false votes to become homecoming queen. They hacked the homecoming queen. They did. <laughs> and oh not just gosh. the girl. I assume. I mean, they arrested her mother as well. So I'm assuming mama was in on this too. So mom really wanted her to be homecoming queen. Well, I think the mom, didn't she, didn't she work at the school? I don't I know think she that. did. Huh? Well, that would explain how she got in. Yeah. And then That's they got on. Oh, I saw this. You know what? I saw this. And then they got on TV and I read their body language and they lied about it. Right. <laughs> <on TV. laughs> they lied like a rug. Liars. Uh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, that's, what I've got in the crime report there. And this one, I was thinking of, oh, I do have a widespread romance scam that I'd love to tell you about, but let's save that for another episode. Mm-hmm. And um, now, do we know on the homecoming queen, are they in jail or are they just going to court or what are they doing? Do we know? Like to, 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 to go to that length for homecoming queen is just ridiculous. Or is it is it that important of a thing? Have, down in Texas, have have you seen those mums that the girls are wearing? They're wearing what? Mums. You gotta have a mum flower at homecoming. Oh, I'm sorry. What is a mum flower? A mum. It's like a it's like a flower. It's like a rose, but it's not a rose. It's like a mum. It's like a flower your mum gives you. No, 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 not mom. Mum. Uh, that's different than my <laughs> homecoming experience, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you wear a mom. I'm sorry, how are we talking about moms? What does this have to do? Because we're talking about homecoming. So I have no idea what happened to her. I know this is back in the spring that they got picked up for this. So uh, I assume there's been some disposition at this point. But well, we're gonna have to watch for that. And I wonder what her mom. Wonder what her mom was like. (laughs) The ladies, the ladies listening will know what I'm talking about. You got to have a mom to a shirt now. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, hey, uh, so that's all I've got that's worth talking about in terms of the crime report. But I'm I'm excited to get in and listen to Jason Hewlett. Well, listen and I to Jason hear- Hewlett's crime report, because you know what? He was getting threats from this guy. Like he was going to find a horse head in his bed and all that <laughs> kind of stuff, which I was like, you know what? That is completely unoriginal for a threat. Like you got. Yeah, and better. it's a total waste of a perfectly good horse. Yeah. Well, and why, would you, why a, would you get rid of a horse like that? It's it's a perfectly waste. It's perfect waste of a good threat, too, because that's been done. That's like Godfather stuff, I think. Yeah, I'd be a whole lot more intimidated if I woke up next to one of these cattle mutilations that the UFOs come down and do. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> well, if they took the head off of that cattle and then put it in and he had surgically some parts removed, like his eyeball. No, uh, that would be much more intimidating. Mm, no, we're just going to talk to Jason and let him talk about it. Jason, it is. All right, let's go. Jason, it's so cool to have you uh, here on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I I just got to tell you, you're just one of the people, and I know we don't know each other like really that well, but I've always just admired like what you do uh, uh, on stage, but how you carry yourself. You just seem like one of the most genuine people at the National Speakers Association. So I'm just thrilled that you're here. Thanks so much. Tracy, that's so nice of you. And the truth is, I've known you for a while. And uh, I think it was when I came out and spoke to your chapter of the NSA. And we got to hang out for dinner with the group. And I 
have always admired your work and I'm so, I'm so proud of your success. It's so fun to be like, I know her, she's famous, <laughs> you know, so it's cool to be here. Famous in my own mind, but maybe more <laughs> later. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we, um, I saw your newsletter, what last week, a couple of weeks ago, cause you have a great newsletter, uh, every week. Cause your whole thing, cause, cause we're both professional speakers and, um, but you have, you have, I feel like you're just multi-layered, right? Because you're this amazing performer and I don't want to say it wrong. Cause it's not, is it impressions or impersonations? Like what's the difference there? Yeah, it's, it's impressions. I started as an impersonator and that's where you would try to impersonate someone else by dressing up, putting on makeup, looking, sounding everything like them as if you were that person. So that might fit in really well with your topic here, <laughs> but then impressions are just quickly changing your face or your voice and doing the voice or the signature moves of that person. So I've been doing both my whole career. I started as an impersonator of Ricky Martin and Elton John in Las Vegas. And then I put together a show of over a hundred impressions of anyone from Michael Jackson to Jim Carrey to Louis Armstrong, the Bee Gees, Led Zeppelin, and just too many to impersonate at once. So quick impressions. That's wow. what I started at. I love it. And your talk, because you're speaking to corporate groups and uh, it's music and just, it's so fun. And I think the last time I saw you, it was, you were like 8 a.m. and I was barely awake. And I was like, he is just going for it. Like I was, I was awake. So, um, but okay. So back to your newsletter. So you send out a great newsletter, which everybody here should subscribe to. And it's all about the promises that you keep or don't. And, and like the way you address things, I think is super cool. So, um, and, and, and the headline was the time I lost a hundred K and I was like, what? Like, that is crazy. <laughs> so, um, why don't we jump into like, what happened? Yeah. So I began my career, as I said, in Las Vegas as an impersonator. And I was just part of a troupe group called the Legends in Concert, where I got to be Elton John on stage. And then later in the show, come back as Ricky Martin. Eventually, I found out that I could do way more uh, of these voices that were really quite extraordinary. So I could jump from, you know, Elton John going la, 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 to Ricky Martin, live in a vida loca, then jump into Michael Jackson, you know, and then I'm jumping into Louis Armstrong. I see trees of green, red roses too. Then I'm the chipmunks. So putting together a show of a hundred plus impressions, became quite an important thing because the top entertainer in Las Vegas at the time was a guy named Danny Gans. And he was an unknown person outside of Vegas, essentially. And he had signed a $150 million contract to headline in Vegas as an incredible impressionist. So I put together my show mimicking his show, but mine was a very family friendly because from where I'm from in Utah, I said, I'm going to do something for families. And so I put that together. Tracy, within three years of putting that together from 2001 to 2004, I was offered a lifetime changing opportunity as a headliner for a Las Vegas show and a casino there. And as I looked through the contract with my wife and we're looking at our dreams coming true, age of 25, I'm like, this is it. This mm -hmm. is my big shot. Uh, we realized that the casino needed to keep a promise to their audience, which was the opposite of my promise to myself. And 
that we couldn't compromise. And so I left Las Vegas. Wait, wait, and wait, I said, wait, wait, back up, back up, back up. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> so wait, what, what was the clause that didn't work? Can you share it or? Oh yeah. They just said, we're going to manage your career. We're going to change everything about your act. We're going to have it fit with the theme of Las Vegas, which had, they had just adopted there called what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. And in the nineties, if you recall in Vegas, it was all about families. They Family, were building yeah family attractions and so forth. And that obviously didn't take. And so they were now doing a huge cultural shift. Uh, not to say that shows couldn't be somewhat clean in Vegas, but it couldn't be as G-rated as I had made mine. And so I kept a promise to myself and left. And in this transition, it was like, what do I do now? Do I go do corporate or do I try to go on into movies? And maybe I do singing because I'm, I'm a really good singer. So maybe I should do a recording contract. And I had those opportunities too. But then I met somebody who said, hey, look, I know the guy who put together Danny Gans show. Danny Gans was my hero. Mm -hmm. Danny Gans had kept it pretty darn clean. So I met the guy. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm in his world. And he says to me, hey, for a certain amount, I can help you get your show in Vegas. It'll be incredible. All we have to do is create it. We're going to spend about six months on it. And it's going to cost you about 100,000 bucks. And I thought, well, that's a lot more than I have. But let's see what we can do. My wife and I had saved our money for a few years. I took out a loan from a cousin. I went through the contract a little bit with my dad because he's a savvy businessman. He's He's been in insurance and financial planning. And so we were like, this looks good. The guy had a good track record. What, nice guy, went to his house, met his family, had him fly to Utah, saw my show. And he said, you are definitely next. You are the next big thing. No wonder why they offered you that big contract. Instead of having to turn things like that away, let's create what they really want, but keep it clean and we'll make it happen so you can get another opportunity. So that's what I was going for, Trace. So so then this guy, though, like as far as his track record, I mean, it, it was a referral, I guess. Or like, tell me, how did how'd you decide? I mean, to pull the trigger on something that big is that's it takes guts. Right. And guts I mean, and stupidity. <laughs> so you know when you're young and you're hungry you're hungry you're mm -hmm. like i'm gonna do whatever it takes because i had already been doing what it took mm -hmm. and to turn away what i had just turned away at the casino it was like well this could help make me a whole lot still and mm -hmm. so i thought you know if i'm gonna invest something this is very much like getting a phd or whatever you would if you went to the top schools mm -hmm. and so we felt that that was a wise investment mm -hmm. and yeah, we got a referral, but it was from one of the uh, main guys from Motown. And oh, wow. he he said, hey, you're an incredible singer. You could totally make it. Here's a guy you need to know. And so it, it all lined up. It looked pretty darn good, you know, and we started to feel like this is a really good opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how it began. Wow. So then, okay, so, so you're going down the path with this guy. What's it look like? Like what is happening uh, like day to day. Yeah. So day to day, I actually had to move to back to, to Las Vegas. And so we, 
we stayed there for a good six months. And in in essence, I was living in St. George, Utah, which is a good two hour drive from Vegas. So I would actually drive through this very interesting Canyon and a long drive. And I'd go there usually on a Monday morning and I would stay then at the wild, wild West hotel for $19 right off the strip (laughs) (laughs) where People were being murdered next door. It sounded like, you know, it was like, like, I mean, it was a scary, creepy place. Mm -hmm. And so I was just staying there and then I would go meet with this guy at his house and we would just sit in his studio and he was a genius in terms of music. I mean, he could play anything. If I said, yeah, I want to try this, he would be able to play it right off the bat. Mm -hmm. He had actually been a part of uh, of a band that was a headlining show. So he was legitimately credentialed. He would sometimes say, Hey, let's go see a showman. And so we'd go downtown and he knew everybody, they knew him, they'd get us in free. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was with the right guy, you Uh know, and I knew his family. can, can Can you say what band he was in? Oh, it was just a headlining show that was, uh, uh, well, actually, yeah, he had actually been with Danny Gans. And okay. so that's why mm-hmm. I was so blown away. And then he was with other headliners through the years as well. You know, like the Osmonds and Clint Holmes and some of the big shows there. He wow. knew Wayne Newton really well. So uh-huh. he was doing amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're getting into shows, you're meeting the people. What about the work? Like what was how'd you, how'd you start? Where did it start to like, at what point were you like, hang on, something's not right. Tracy, I think because even with my intro, you said that I'm a genuine type guy. Mm -hmm. I am very trusting to a fault, obviously with this story, but I'll tell you, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I thought it was great. I was so excited that I was being taught and mentored by somebody that I trusted and that seemed like he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And because I'm such a music geek anyway, I just was flipping out over his abilities. Uh And so I saw nothing wrong. And my wife is the first one who said, what's going on here? You know, I would come home after two days of working with this guy because I'd sit in his house for for about eight to 10 hours on Mm -hmm. a Monday and then on a Tuesday. And we would just sit there and kind of tool around and work on a couple things. And eventually he'd take a phone call and I'd just be sitting there waiting. And then, then we'd maybe try to record something and it didn't work out. And he'd add in some horns to the keyboard and maybe Mm -hmm. add some drums. My wife finally was like, are you getting any of the material that was promised? Because we had paid for 60 minutes worth of material to be created from scratch to make Mm -hmm. an entire show over a six month period. Mm -hmm. That would be Las Vegas. Awesome. And I was, I was coming back home each time and saying, I don't have anything to show you other than what we practiced. And so she eventually was like, well, here we are three months in and how are you going to get anything else. Cause I maybe had five or 10 minutes worth to show her on a, on the old CDs. This is how old this story is. <laughs> now, now <laughs> so. what, what direction was the show headed? Like, was it like, was it kind of what you're doing now? Like, uh, I mean, cause, cause you're funny up there and, and easy going, but then you bust into these uh, impressions with music or was it, how, was there a story arc supposed to happen? Tell me about that. Yeah, interesting to ask. I I was not encouraged to do the funny faces and the storytelling and the other things that I've become known for. Really? All we were working towards was musical impressions because uh-huh. that was very hot in Vegas. That's what Danny mm-hmm. Gans had done mm-hmm. and created a $150 million deal out of. So I said, that's what I want to do. So I was working on 
um, these minute long bits where I would Mm -hmm. sing as an artist and I would change the words. I would make it funny. And I was doing parody with impressions. So if it would be like weird Al meets the, the exact voice that he's trying to do instead of the weird Al we know, which sounds Mm -hmm. nothing like the artist. And it was a very entertaining uh, show that we were putting together that was going to make people laugh the entire time and maybe sometimes make them feel happy or, or sentimental or nostalgia. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a, it was an interesting experience to try to create that with somebody because I had only done it myself before. Wow. Okay. So so you're coming home three months, not a lot to show for it. Your wife starts to get hip or asking some questions. So what happens next? So I went after a frustrating conversation. I drove all the way back from St. George, Utah, two hours to Las Vegas, pull up to his house one day and his wife meets me there. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is 2004. So this is phones are a thing, but they're not like the nicest phones yet. Right. And his, his wife meets me at the door and says, Hey, uh, you can't come in. And I said, oh. why? I just drove all the way here this morning. You know? mm-hmm. what, what's going on? And she goes, your payment hasn't come through yet. And I said, Oh, well, I, you know, I, I'd be happy to get you what I can when I uh-huh. can get it. I mean, I've been on time every time. And she goes, no, we need it immediately. Or you can't come in here today. Really? And, and these payments weren't small payments, right? Because it was like 10 grand a month or so, wasn't it? That, I mean, uh, well, wrote. yeah, it was, it was, I think if I recall, it was like 15 to 20 K per time, you oh, know, wow. per month, okay. because it was a hundred thousand over six months. And so mm-hmm. uh, they wouldn't even let me in and I didn't have a checkbook and mm-hmm. I didn't have money like that, just sitting in an account. Uh-huh. And so I had to call my wife, she had to scramble to try to figure out how do we wire transfer immediately money. You know, this was before we're shuffling money around on computers. Right, right. And so oh she's gosh. going racing to the bank and they're going, wait, what? What are you trying to, why are you sending this much money to this person right uh-huh. now, this second? Almost like it seemed like a drug dealer, some kind of bad thing. That's what happening. it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, but it's also no trust on their end. No. And I'm the most trusting guy you yeah. can meet. And I've been sitting in their house for three months and, and, and I had never missed a payment anyway, but I think it was just a, it, maybe it was around Martin Luther King day or some goofy holiday where the payment didn't come right away. And it was goofy, Tracy. It was, it, that was the first major red flag to me. Uh-huh. And I, my wife was like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm just going to sit here and wait. So I sat in my Subaru in the heat of the sun of Las Vegas oh. for five hours that day, just waiting to see what would happen and back and forth on my little QWERTY keyboard phone, whatever the phone was back then. Yeah. And tried to just wait for money to come. And suddenly he came walking out of his house and he flags me and he goes, come on in. So I walked in and he kind of had this look on his face and he goes, Hey, we just have to make sure this payment comes through before we keep rolling. And I was like, yeah, that, that was kind of different, man. I didn't expect that at all. And he's like, yeah, my wife runs the finances. So we need to just keep it above board. And okay. So we sat there and worked for two days and got very little done. And then it was, uh, it was about, uh, two or three weeks later, my brother came with me. Cause I was uh-huh. like, maybe you should check it out. Cause he, he kind of has a good eye for people. Mm-hmm. 
And he walked in and he goes, this is bad. Really? Yeah. He knew it right away. You can read people from a mile away. What did he say? He he said, you're being hoodwinked. You're being swindled. And I was Uh like, no, I'm not. We're arguing in this guy's living room because he had gone back to his studio, which is the back of the house. And Uh he's like, this is bad. You got to get out of this. And I was like, I've already committed. I've signed a contract. And he's like, where's the contract? And I was like, it's at home. I'll show you. Tracy, that's when we started to look at what we had gotten ourselves into. It it was the ultimate one-sided contract. There was no way for me to get out of it. There was no way for me not to pay it. Mm-hmm. And, and now here we're about four, four and a half months in oh. and, and, and I'm like, oh man, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And, and so this is, it gets a little hairier. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so you're sitting there with your brother and your brother's like, this is not a good scenario. What happens like after that, what happens in that moment? I mean, I just kind of sucked it up and kept working with the guy and my, uh-huh. I could see that the guy was leery of my brother because mm. my brother wears it completely on his face. You uh-huh. know? He's not with this guy. Mm-hmm. And so my brother was not invited back the next day. And, and so I he just called you and said, keep your brother at the $19 hotel. Uh-huh, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. And so I was like, huh? Okay. And so he, he, this guy canceled a few times on me and I kept payments coming. And then eventually six months spread into about seven or eight months and then nine months. And we're trying to figure out schedules. I had a few op- opportunities and gigs that I had to fulfill. So eventually now we're looking at almost 10, 11 months into this. Uh-huh. I only have maybe 10 or 15 minutes worth of material in my pocket to be able to show that we did anything. Mm-hmm. And now, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm like, how do I get out? I need to get my money back. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to two lawyer friends that are very hardline lawyers. They both looked over the contract independently without consulting each other and said, you're screwed. Oh man. <laughs> oh, I said, come on. There's no way. They're like, dude, why would you sign this? Why didn't you have us look at this before? Uh And I was like, well, my dad and I looked at it and my, you know, he's savvy and I think I'm pretty smart and my wife and I, and man, what were we thinking? Right. So that kind of money, but it was completely one sided. The contract like didn't have like delivery points or or those kind of like, uh, I don't know what the name is where like, like what were they wanting to see in it? No, they, they wanted it to be a a bit more of a, if this isn't delivered, you will not have to pay this, but Mm -hmm. it was nothing like that. It was completely created by this person Mm -hmm. that was saying it will be delivered. And then what the, the kind of the clause in there was, if the material is not finished on the producer and creator's part, which was his Mm -hmm. within the six month timeframe, the artist, which was me, will have to pay a the same amount again for the next six months. Oh, crap. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And so as I'm sitting there like, okay, now uh, I have no material essentially to show for this, that Mm -hmm. I just did all this, spent all this money and all this work. And now I'm obligated another six months for another hundred grand. I can't do it. And I started to confront him. Uh In emails, I'd go to his house, which is a long drive from Salt Lake City Uh because we had by now moved back. Mm -hmm. So now it's a six hour 
commute. And I would go there and he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't return my calls. Um, uh, eventually I said, Hey, I'm going to have to take you to court. Mm-hmm. And, and then that's where the real threats began, which was, you know, the Godfather-esque threats. And Making I was you like, an offer you couldn't refuse. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't, don't get, don't mess around with us, buddy. Vegas (laughs) style. (laughs) You gotta be careful. Vegas style. And it's, it's a real thing and people don't know that. And so I wasn't sure what I was dealing with, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just uh, backed off and I said, okay, I guess I just lost all that money. Uh And Tracy, I thought, you know what, at least I got 10 or 15 minutes worth of material that I can still use. Mm -hmm. At least I can just meld that into a show that I can create. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine and I sat down, his name's Sean Rapier. He's one of my dearest friends. This was 2005, right? As my wife and I are building our, our house, mm-hmm. we're expecting our first child. Mm-hmm. We've just turned away Las Vegas casino opportunity, which would have led us into the highlights of life. Mm-hmm. And instead we've lost our life savings. We're like, <sighs> what, what have we done? And as I'm sitting there with my friend, Sean, and I'm saying, maybe I should go to Wendy's and get a job. Mm -hmm. And he was like, dude, you're too good to not keep trying. Let's create a show. So we created a show in like a couple of days. He and I just sitting and hanging out. Mm -hmm. We implemented and integrated the material I had gotten from Vegas shyster guy, Mm -hmm. Tracy. Mm -hmm. I went to Las Vegas with my brother a couple of months later to go and watch other Vegas shows. Cause mm-hmm. that's what we do for research. Right. Okay, right. I'm sitting there watching a couple of different comedians, some impressionists. There were a couple of guys that were, we were all on kind of the same level. And all of a sudden I see the material that I've been doing in my act is the same material as the guys are doing on the stage. Like, like word for word, word for freaking word. Not just the, not just the parody, the setup, the bit, oh. the lead out, the whole deal that he and I had quote unquote created together in his office. I found out that all he had done was go to the Vegas shows of these up and comers or these established artists that he knew I hadn't seen. Uh-huh. And he just lifted their material right out of their show. Oh. And I, I contacted each artist, uh-huh. each headliner, because I knew them personally. I said, mm-hmm. hey, how long have you been doing that uh, Alanis Morissette bit, for uh-huh. example? And they're like, uh, five years. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Uh, how long have you been doing the Backstreet Boy? Yeah, three years. You know, I only had the material for about four months. Uh-huh. Oh man. And I was like, I am now literally stealing material from my friends. And it looks like I'm the shyster. <laughs> so I spent all that money, all that time got nothing out of it in terms of new material that I could use. And I, I could have easily kept using it. That would have been a thing that lots of people can do, but mm-hmm. you know me, I'm just like, okay, it's over. Mm-hmm. So I scrapped it. And that was that. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. So then let's talk about this. Looking back, what other signs were there besides, I mean, before it all went wrong, like was there anything else? Like if, like when you think back on it, cause we're like 20 years out, right? Yep. 20 What's years the, out almost. Like, like, like if there was something that people listening could learn, like, like <laughs> I think what? there's so much that I'm sure your <laughs> listeners are like, who is this idiot person? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, you know, I was listening to some of your other episodes about Unabomber and yeah. and Fen, Fen's treasure hunt uh-huh. and all the things. And it's like, you think about people and then you think, oh, well, of course they found them. Or of course this is, this is such a, a simple thing to find a treasure like that, a Fen's treasure or whatever. Yeah. My gosh, looking back on it, even still, I go, man, I, I was so hoodwinked. I mean, the first thing was when we flew him to Utah to come and see me do my act, uh, he had all kinds of demands as if he was a star, like he needed to fly at a certain level. He needed to eat and stay at certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just figured that's because he was a hot shot producer. So we may as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have done way more reference checking and homework. I would have asked the bands that he had left, why he had left if it was on his terms. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I really made a big mistake there. Uh, I had heard that he had uh, lawsuits with other people. I should have reached out to them as well. If I had mm-hmm. done more homework, I would have known that this is kind of his bag is to just go in, take advantage of a young, hungry artist, and then uh, kind of take them for what they're worth. And I had other artists reach out to me, luckily, after him doing that to me, and I was able to help some steer clear. Wow. Yeah. So that was satisfying, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it didn't help me in any way. (laughs) So looking back, I'd also say contracts, as smart as you may be as smart as your successful relative might be to hire a lawyer for something so simple would have saved me so much money Mm -hmm. to have an out clause. If something's not working and to have exactly what you said that wasn't in there, timelines of delivery, we should have been shooting for probably since it was a 60 minute show over six months, we should have shot for a, you know, a quarterly review Mm -hmm. within that six months and had 15 minute increments being delivered. And if it wasn't that, we needed to stop. Uh, I would have, uh, I, I actually would have been leery of the house situation. Really? What? Tell me about that. It, it just, eventually I realized he did not have an office. He did not have any proof that he was a real business. He was just a guy mm-hmm. that was doing this thing. And, and it was not real coaching. I mean, there are plenty of coaches that you go to their house and you're like, oh, this is legit. Mm-hmm. You know, I get it. This was not a legitimate situation. And I just put up with it because I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say if somebody only has a house, but doesn't have the office um, demands that you meet them there, uh, or there is no other option. I mean, uh, eventually I was being held hostage in my own way for not having the payments or for, you know, sometimes they would say, Hey, little, little so-and-so has a baseball game. We need to end this early without any kind of pre-agenda or anything. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. There was a lot going on there, Tracy. And it was, there's a lot to look back on and see, but um, yeah, I'm, I mean, equally I'm grateful I went through it so that I could warn the others. That mm-hmm. was helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's helped me to be careful with every business dealing I've had ever since. Well, that's just the thing. Like we go through stuff, right? Until and and you repeat it until you don't repeat it anymore, right? So I imagine while it's like un like it's completely like it it'll just get you. Like there's other stuff you've like you may have saved yourself more than that. <laughs> like you know, uh, yeah, so- yeah, I believe so. I hope so. Mm-hmm. And equally. 
I had to come to a spiritual place of forgiveness, which was really tough, mm-hmm. you know, or, or I couldn't move on. I actually sat with this heavy feeling of, of hate and, mm-hmm. and spite and the world must be against me for years. Really? Oh yeah. And I tried to reach out to him on father's day or on other days that I thought I should reach out and say, I'm sorry, you know, like mm-hmm. on an Easter or something mm-hmm. or Christmas. Right. Never, never a touchback. He, he completely wrote me off after threatening that I shouldn't uh, pursue any kind of law, uh, you know, prosecution or anything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I never heard back from him. And so I had to forgive him myself. And that was probably the most important part for me was to finally just say, I got to let it go. And Mm -hmm. now it's just a part of my story. Now it's just a chapter in the book, you know? Wow. Yeah. Now, do you, do you talk about that in your, um, like with what you're doing now? Never. No. I've never talked about this on any podcast. I I just threw that on the live stream because I was, I'm trying to remember even why I went into it, but I think it was just like, uh, a lot of people think they know my story because they know that casino offer yeah. that I turned away. Yeah, that's all and, I knew. Yeah. Yeah. And so most people don't know that there's a, a back end to that story that's even perhaps more tragic. It's mm-hmm. one thing to turn away the opportunity. It's another thing to then be taken a full advantage of in the beginning of everything for your career. Mm-hmm. And so I think that maybe that is a important story for me to share with others because uh, a lot of people after the casino offer, when I turned it away, may have just said, you know, I'm going to try something else. And I just kept pushing and saying, I believe that on the foundation of what I've created, this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. And to then be taken advantage of, you would think that I should have been done by now, but I, I'm, happy with the fact that I didn't quit even after that. Well, you had a lot of opportunities to quit. Like, and you've, you've talked about them uh, many times. Right. And I'm so glad that, that you didn't and, and kept going. Cause so let's, let's talk about, um, well, I have one comment. Do you think no, cause I, I just think there's like a cosmic alignment to what happens for us. Right. And I know you're a spiritual guy. Do you, do you think you really belong in Vegas? Like, I, I don't get you as a Vegas. I don't think you'd be happy there. No, I, I was never meant for the place. And I do enjoy Vegas. I still do conventions there. I've mm-hmm. performed in every major casino there. And I'm grateful for the opportunities. In fact, I was there with 10,000 MLM women uh, mm-hmm. two months ago at the MGM Grand Arena, Garden Arena. And so I, I was never meant to be there. Mm-hmm. And however, it's interesting to shoot for the stars and then have the opportunity laid out in front of you. And I did have multiple casinos offer me all the same stuff Mm -hmm. at one point. And Mm -hmm. that is really satisfying. I mean, it's neat to be able to say, yeah, I could go to a city and I could be desired. And then to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to go back to where I need to be. And Mm -hmm. and I found my place. And so Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of friends actually that have taken those uh, offers on that I turned away mm-hmm. and have told me I'm an idiot for turning him away. And Tracy, I I'm okay with that because equally between them turning uh, or doing their, uh, you know, accepting those offers, they've also had some real problems with their addictions, with their family relations, mm-hmm. with their spirituality or religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. A lot of those things fall to the wayside when we chase that, which uh, is, is such a worldly desire. And so for me, it was like, I have more to 
live for than just doing this one thing that's going to satisfy me today. Right. Okay. So what are you doing now? Cause you're doing, you're up to some cool stuff. Cause you've had a little bit of a shift in your business and we haven't even talked about it. So I'm not hundred <laughs> on what you're doing. So this is your chance to toot your horn about Ooh. like, I mean, cause you're parlaying all that experience with everything you've done into this new, like, is it like a consulting kind of thing or t- like talk about it? You're very nice to ask. So I went from doing this show of impressions, which eventually me and my buddy created this great show. Mm -hmm. And then my brother and I continued to write and, and I've performed it for, oh gosh, what we're 2021. Here we are 16 years into it. You know, um, I, I decided to become a motivational speaker on top of that and bring in leadership principles, such as accountability, integrity, character, and uh, how you can be completely the owner of what you do. So I created a concept called The Promise, and it's based upon the idea that when we say we're going to do something, we do it, and that we are all based upon foundational values, and that every company has those, as well as the individuals that work for them. So Mm -hmm. I, I wrote a book called The Promise to the One, which is the promise to yourself. And from what I understand, people feel that I'm an authority on that sort of thing because of some of the stories I've just shared with you. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, if anyone keeps a promise to himself, it's you, man. And so the book is actually quite a spill the beans experience for people. It's a, it's almost like a memoir, but it's also a how to for you to determine what amount of promises you're making, or if you're making and keeping the right ones. Mm -hmm. And so I literally fillet my whole story, my whole body out in front of everyone and say, these are all the promises I've broken. And these are some of the ones that I've kept and how can you do the same? And so I now do coaching uh, one-on-one myself, which I find fascinating to Mm -hmm. have gone from being hoodwinked to now saying, how can I hold somebody's hand all the way through the process? So I do a lot of coaching, mentoring, help people with their speech, help people build up their business, help. I've kind of become like this project legacy uh, coach, you know, as far as like, Hey, what's your promise to yourself? So let's talk about your uh, promise legacy project and taking men that are CEOs and now retiring and not sure what to do. I say, let's, let's keep on the path of doing impact in the world and having influence and helping them with their speeches and so forth. So um, that's what it's become. It's pretty cool. I love it. And I just think like, I don't, I, I just, you're just one of the people I, I, I just, ever since you like started with the promise stuff, I'm like, that is so aligned with just how you carry yourself. I just, I think it's great. I think it's just perfect for you. And, um, okay. So how can people get a hold of you? Oh gosh, jasonhewlett.com. If they can spell Hewlett, it's probably on their printer for Hewlett Packard, but yeah, jasonhewlett.com or my emails, just my name, jason at jasonhewlett.com. And my, my website's in the middle of about to be redone, which I'm excited for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've been focused on some other projects over the last year. We're shifting everything back to just saying, okay, got to go get some gigs. Mm -hmm. Keynoting is my favorite thing. I'm going to be writing more books other than just the promise to the one. There'll be the Mm -hmm. promise to the family, the promise to the team, the promise to the customer. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for thinking the brand is a cool idea because I'll be candid. A lot of my old clients, they're like, just entertain us, man. Mm -hmm. And eventually I had to keep a promise to myself that 
because it was vocally damaging me, mm-hmm. it literally hurting my body. Uh, I had to retire pieces that hurt mm-hmm. me physically. Like Jim Carrey was painful. Michael Jackson is not appropriate at this point for a motivational speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things that just I've had to retire that are some of my best routines continue to solidify that the promise is essential for all of us to make in our lives, Mm -hmm. not to just set a goal and hopefully you hit it. But I like to say, why set a goal and you can make a promise. And that's not to say goals aren't important because they are, but if you Uh set one and you miss it, just set another one. But if you make a promise, you break it, that's a one and done. And Mm -hmm. so what are your promises to yourself? It's essential to know. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. Well, I'll tell you what, thank you so much. I'm gonna let you get back to your day and um, out there helping people keep their promises and make the right ones and things like that. So thank you. Uh, You're just awesome. And um, I know, I know we'll be talking soon. You're amazing. Thanks for your good work. I'm thrilled to be on this podcast. Good, good job with it. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.